Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. This podcast features accomplished authors and a variety of experts to help writers of all genres incorporate more authentic cops, crimes, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, acclaimed international bestseller Brad Parks steps into the interrogation room to clear up a few things about his writing and his craft. Brad's the only writer to have won all three of American crime fiction's most prestigious prizes. His novels have been translated into 15 languages and have won critical acclaim across the globe, including stars from every major pre-publication review outlet. A graduate of Dartmouth College, Brad previously worked as a journalist with the Washington Post and Newark's Star-Ledger. His latest novel launches September 1st. Entitled Interference, this story takes readers along on an emotional, heart-pounding thriller that explores the scientific unknown and one woman's efforts to save her husband from its consequences. Welcome to Raiders on the Beat, Brad. It is an absolute honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Gavin, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Critics have already had high praise for this latest novel, uh, Interference, which won't even be released to the public until September 1st. And some of that's even encouraging Michael Crichton's fans not to miss it, which is incredibly well-deserved praise for your effort here. For... Yeah, I'll, I, I, I was definitely not complaining when that Publishers <laughs> Weekly review with, with the star on it and said Michael Crichton fans will not want to miss this one. Like that, that was uh, actually, I was, I was not complaining. And uh, the, the nice folks at Amazon Publishing were definitely complaining even less when yes. that came out. Uh, for everyone who didn't get an advanced copy of this, what do you want them to know about interference? So it's a, it's a thriller with some really good science in it. Uh, and the, the thrilling aspect is that the protagonist is a uh, kind of an, an ordinary mom, a librarian whose husband has been kidnapped. And the science part of it is that he is a, a, a physics professor and now his wife is going to attempt to harness the, the secrets of quantum physics in order to find him. Now, I really liked how you opened this book because uh, as, a, as a Michael Crichton fan myself, my, I've got some academic background in, in chemistry and biochemistry. So my, my science geek side really appreciates that. Um, but I also really like how you open this up in Brigitte's perspective and it, made me feel a little bit more at ease that the science you were about to lay down on me was not going to be overwhelming. You just hit this perfect note of her first person perspective and made me feel like you weren't going to make me feel dumb. So thank you for not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds like if anything, uh, I would be the dumb one talking about science in this conversation. But, uh, But actually, I really, I think that that is kind of my great advantage in writing this book is that I do approach science from a relatively dumb perspective. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the social science guy writing about science here. So mm-hmm. I'm always kind of in touch with that layperson who knows nothing. Uh, or or let, let me put, put it this way. It's not easy for me, to, or it's not hard for me to access that person mm-hmm. because I was that person generally not very long ago, right? So, uh, you know, I think that's oftentimes experts do have that problem of they forget all the things that they just sort of know. Yeah. And that most of us don't. Right. And so um, I think that's a that's something and you and I were talking before we, we went on the air. About, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist in by trade, even if I'm not by profession and by paycheck anymore, by training and by the way I approach the world, I, I do so as a journalist. And a journalist always keeps that general audience in mind. 
So it was, it was important to me that I, that I not lose, certainly a guy like you who has a science background, <laughs> then also somebody who has zero science background and perhaps not even a lot of science interest. Uh, you know, I, I'm always kind of fascinated by the, the science phobia that exists in our country. You know, as soon as you say quantum physics, people go, oh boy, I don't know. And it's like, actually the ideas of quantum physics are not that hard to understand. The equations are impossible, sure, but you know when when you're talking about kind of the, you know the the, the parts that interest me as a storyteller, which are the ideas and the personalities, uh, those things are very accessible no matter what your science background is. So I always kind of tried to keep that that just that sense of accessibility all throughout the manuscript. Yeah, and sorry, I have to make adjustments. I have a, a lazy bulldog who's laying here next to me, about to knock some stuff over. Um. That was one of the things when I was uh, first started teaching chemistry a lifetime ago, uh, somebody told me that Albert Einstein had uh, once famously said that it didn't matter how much he knew if he couldn't explain it to his grandmother. And mm. that was one of the things that I, I really appreciated about e e Crichton's work and about, you know, reading interference so far is that, you know, I, I think you hit the perfect nail on the head of combining some aspects of uh, domestic suspense, some techno thriller, some, heavy science made easy, um, but also pieces of like private eye and police procedurals and uh, maybe a murder mystery thrown into this mix, right? So um, I, uh, as a bookstore owner, I think I would have a very hard time trying to figure out where to shelve this. So right, uh, right. How, how would you describe the book genre and, and which two novels would you like to see it shelved between? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Well, first of all, uh, congratulations on coming up with an Einstein quote that I'd never heard before. Uh, so that, that is definitely, and there's not many of those. I think, you know, if you're kind of a science geek, and I, I am a kind of an amateur science geek, mm -hmm. for sure. You know, Einstein is, of course, a guy you end up reading about a lot, and you, you bump, I've never heard that quote. Um, but yeah, it is, uh, it, it's a book that uh, perhaps crosses a lot of the thriller subgenres. Mm -hmm. But it's still very much a thriller, and and I do need to to I, uh, to stress that because the, uh, since the book has been an Amazon first read selection, it's already gotten you know several hundred on its way to perhaps a, a couple of thousand uh, reviews on the site, and the some of the most disappointed readers have been science fiction readers who somehow. <laughs> stumbled onto this yeah. and thought I was going to take them to Alpha Centauri or something like that. It's like, <laughs> no, we are not going there. So, I mean, it really is. It's a pretty conventional thriller mm -hmm. with, I mean, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's kind of a domestic thriller, yes. uh, which is what I've done through a lot of my life because it is focused on the family and the relationships and these, these kind of very common things. I mean, I think even the, the cop I have in this and the, in the police procedural elements are in this are, are framed in these very human ways. The, uh, the detective Emmett Webster is, has just suffered the loss of his wife. And, you know, in his struggling with that every bit as much as he's struggling with this crime. Um, and so I, I think in that way, uh, you know, I, there have been a lot of people who have been trying to claim the throne of the next Michael Crichton. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and nobody can, of course. But, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but, but I think what Crichton did so well was mix these, these, these very difficult, and, and very fun scientific elements with some real characters, right? And with some mm -hmm. characters who are not just cardboard cutouts and who, who really are 
fleshy and wonderful and you know whether it's uh, ian malcolm the brilliant scientist mm -hmm. or the the grandfatherly guy i'm blanking on his name or you know i mean he, yeah. he's he, he's got these these kind of rich characters um who, who really come to life and I, and i hope to do the same thing in interference uh you know i always say my characters are people i can close my eyes and i can see them i can hear them I kind of know who they are and and i hope by the end of the book that the reader knows who they are too so as to the the question that i've been trying to stall on what <laughs> what book do i you know so uh, the thing is i always get shelved in the thriller section in the peas so i'm pretty much always <laughs> battling james patterson for space you know like james patterson yeah. richard north patterson like it is it is a crowded pa section of the yes. bookshelf right yeah. even yeah. chris pavone my buddy yes uh, another buddy yeah. of mine dj palmer like it is there's a lot going on just in that p section so I'm, I'm i'm happy duking it out with the p guys like i normally do but but definitely it should be shelved as a thriller now on on that aspect i really like the domestic thriller genre uh, subgenre in particular because it is so relatable like you mentioned right that you know almost everyone can relate to the characters and and their problems or their dilemmas uh, and I don't think that's always true, right? Of a lot of crime or a lot of police procedurals. Not everybody's had experience as a cop or, you know, as a uh, having a someone in their family murdered. Um, and I, I wonder in, in crafting uh, Brigitte. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. I, I, I would say Bridget. I mean, she's Bridget, a, she's okay. an American, right? She's Bridget Bronick. Okay. Um, no, in 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 crafting Bridget, um, how did you? go about trying to make sure that she was that relatable um, and identifiable with your readers. So it was, yeah, Bridget was definitely an interesting character to let come to life because I actually wrote her originally in the third person. Uh, and and forgive forgive us if we get a little nerdy authory for a second. Yeah, we're 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 gonna get inside <laughs> baseball here. But I wrote her in third person, and I got to the end of the manuscript, and I felt like. I don't know this character as well as I need to. And I kind of did an entire really uh, redo on Bridget. I, I went way back to the beginning because I because I realized like I just I just never had a handle on this character. I rewrote her in the first person, but also I changed who she was. Uh, so in the first so, so in the in the final draft, Bridget is a librarian who has uh, hearing loss, right? right? None of that existed in the first draft at all. But wow. that was really what made Bridget come alive for me. Mm -hmm. And I'll, 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 I'll just go ahead and tell tales on myself. How did this come about? Well, uh, I'm a kind of guy, I need to like my protagonists. I, I just, I am not one of those people who can write unlikable protagonists because I don't want to spend 400 pages with a jerk, right? Yep. And so when I was kind of contemplating this redraft, uh, we had just gotten this new neighbor and her name was Melissa and she was a librarian who had hearing loss. And I just liked her. I don't know why, you know, why do you like someone who the heck knows, yep. but she was nice. She was fun. She was smart. She was interesting to talk to. And I was kind of at the same time going, okay, how am I going to spice up this character Bridget who's just flat on the page right now? How am I going to, and I go, Oh, I'll make her a librarian with hearing loss. And there we go. So <laughs> I, I wish there was there was something more mystical to it than that. But, you know, just that one thing, uh, kind mm -hmm. of the combination of a, of a different profession and an obstacle that she had to deal with uh, really kind of brought her to life on the page. And, and I really enjoyed it too, because I, I'm well read in the thriller genre. I know you are too. 
I could not remember reading a character with hearing loss before. No. And, and it, it kind of, it was a lot of fun to explore that issue. So I, I talked with my neighbor. I, I talked with some other folks in the hearing loss community. I talked with an audiologist, you know, to, to really kind of, because I, I wanted to, to faithfully bring this character to life. Uh, and, and I just, I found I really enjoyed that because it, it's an obstacle that you're just not expecting all the time or you haven't seen before. Uh, but then the other thing I love about it is how often what we conventionally call disabilities Mm -hmm. also come with special abilities. Yes. Uh, my, my favorite example of this is uh, I, uh, I had a cousin with Down syndrome. Uh, do you know that people with Down syndrome, something like 98% of people with Down syndrome say they're happy with their lives? Yeah, which, it's uh, which incredible. Is, yeah, it's, 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 you know, off the charts. There's no other, yeah. you can find no other group of people who are that happy. And mm -hmm. isn't that a superpower, right? Isn't that an yes. incredible ability that happens to come with this thing we call a disability, right? Well, in the case of, of hearing loss, of course, uh, Bridget can read lips, uh, or as they sometimes call it, speech reading in the, in the hearing loss community. And uh, that was definitely something that I was, as I was doing the rewrite, like, oh, she is going to have to use that at some point. It yes. was always kind of in my back pocket. Uh, and sure enough, there came a point late in the novel where that became a very important thing for her to be able to do. So uh, I really just, I, I enjoyed, and it took some work, mm -hmm. uh, how Bridget kind of fleshed out and really became this real character in my mind and on the page. Now, since you stole my next question about whether or not your first person uh, for Bridget was uh, something you decided on or something she uh, introduced herself to you, as a writer, I wonder when you first knew that you wanted to write fiction and then oh. when you actually wrote something someone else wanted to read. <laughs> I'm not sure if I've done that yet, Gavin. So. <laughs> <laughs> there are times when I doubt it. Uh, you know, I, I think I, uh, well, you know, I, I wrote my first novel when I was seven. Uh, it was wow. uh, what I would call an adventure, a, a, a nature thriller, uh, because it was about a bear wandering through the wilderness with his friends. Uh, mind you, I spelled bear B-E-E-R. Perfect. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's really, for college. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I think I'd, I just, I'd always been a writer. And I'd always been telling stories to myself and, uh, you know, what form those stories took, what, what format they ended up in, whether it was a newspaper or a novel, you know, that, that changed for various reasons at various times throughout the course of my life. Uh, but I always had, so even when I went into journalism, because, you know, journalism, um, <laughs> I graduated college in 1996, which was the last possible moment that a young man could think that newspaper journalism was going to be a wonderful, steady career <laughs> that would take him through to a happy retirement. Yes. Uh, I, obviously, I quickly got disabused of that notion. Yeah. Um, but, but I always had in mind, even when I was first going into it, that, you know, look, I loved reading mysteries and thrillers. Um, even now, my idea of a great vacation is still, let me throw two bathing suits and seven books in a bag and go on a beach somewhere for a week, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I always knew that newspapers were a grinding, grueling business that, that chew people up and spit people out. And that I would have this, this semi-retirement right after I burned out from newspapers sometime in my mid fifties that I would just find a little cottage somewhere on a, on a little lake or a body of water or whatever. And I would bang out mystery novels. And that would be my wonderful way to, uh, to, to spend the rest of my life until I went senile. Well, 
newspapers, of course, started collapsing all around me. And essentially what I've done is just speed up the timeline. Uh, instead of doing that in my mid-50s, I started doing that in my mid-30s instead. Um, and so as to, as to when I discovered somebody wanted to read it, I, yeah, boy, that's hard to say. <laughs> um, but I think there, there are certainly those little affirmations mm-hmm. as a writer all throughout your life where you know, okay, I'm, I'm doing the right thing here. I'm doing something that people might be interested in. And, uh, you know, for, with, with fiction writing, for me, I'd actually, I had already written an entire manuscript that I, is, you know, that's the classic drawer novel, it'll stay there. Mm-hmm. But it was at least enough to attract the attention of an agent. And then she said, boy, you know, I, kinda, I like this novel, but I don't know if I can sell it. Do you have anything else? And I sent her the first three chapters of what was this uh, story uh, written from the perspective of an investigative newspaper reporter in Newark, New Jersey. And she read the first three chapters and she said, that I can sell. Wow. And just being told, okay, this mm-hmm. is something I can sell, that, that kind of ignited me. And uh, within a, a relatively short amount of time later, Carter Ross, the hero of my first six novels, mm-hmm. uh, was born and out into the world. Now, with you having accelerated the timeline by which you found the small cottage, you know, somewhere near Walden's Pond, but to write mystery <laughs> novels, um, do you think that that has also accelerated the senility scheduled for later in life? Still- <laughs> yes, well, there, there are definitely times. I'm only 46, Gavin, and I already think I'm there. So, yeah, I, I, we're, we're definitely uh, uh, sneaking up on it every day. And, you know, and the number of times now I have to not only use the little granny reader glasses to read small type, mm, yes. but I've forgotten where I put the little granny reader glasses is really getting uh, quite humbling. Well, the, the real question there is how many pairs do you own? Because eventually you get tired <laughs> of losing that one and there's one in every room. Right, right. right. Yeah. Well, so it's still relatively new for me. I hung on for a good while. Oh, congratulations. Um, but yes, yeah. yeah. But but my wife, had she went a long time ago. So uh, yeah, I'm still in the I'll steal hers if I need to, uh, which oh. is dangerous. Clearly, yes. clearly dangerous. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I find a, a lot of creatives I talk to had mentors along the way who mm. helped push them, encourage them, polish their craft, or, or give them the, the, the tough love and criticism that they needed to improve. I, I wonder who yours were and how they impacted your writing. Wow. Gavin, I could talk about this for about three hours. Um, because again, as a writer, I think there, there have to be times when, when someone encourages you, right? When, when mm-hmm. someone pulls you aside and says, hey, kid, I, I think you got something. I like what you're doing. And, um, uh, and, and those are those, those moments that make you say, wow, I, I guess I'm, I'm not nuts for wanting to do this, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I can remember one that, that still strikes me because there's, there's nothing quite as wonderful as someone who takes something really complex like writing and simplifies it for you. And this happened my freshman year in college. I was at Dartmouth College. Uh, it was actually, and this ties around to Interference, my wonderful new book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a history of science class that I was taking. Uh, and it was, a, it was a wonderful, wonderful field of study that I ended up taking a number of classes in, actually. And uh, it was a, so it was my freshman seminar, and I got pulled in by the professor. And oh, my God, the professor's asked to talk with me. He says, Brad, I'd like to talk to you about your paper. And, you know, you're thinking, oh, my God, I plagiarized something without realizing it. What did I do wrong? Yeah. And instead, I went to his office, and he said, I can tell you're a writer. 
And I was, I was sort of startled because by that point, I had been writing for newspapers for a long time. All right. I got my first newspaper job when I was 14. So by wow. the age of 19, I was, I was, a, I yeah. was a veteran newspaper reporter. Right? Yeah. But I thought of myself only as a newspaper writer. Right. And that's what I told him. I said, oh, yeah, yeah. I, but I'm just a newspaper writer. And he said, no, 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 no. Writing is nothing more than taking your thoughts and articulating them on paper. And it was kind of like, oh, yeah. He's right. And I know it sounds so simple, but mm -hmm. uh, I still think of that sometimes. And, yeah. and like, and, and I talk a lot of, you know, to, to younger writers or to writers who are just developing about uh, voice, you know, where, where is voice? What, it, what, where, what does it come from? And I think about that professor all the time, because I really believe that when you start out that act that he described, getting the thoughts from your head onto the page, you, there's this thick filter, right? that the more you do it, the more you make that transfer, the filter thins out mm -hmm. and thins out and thins out until finally it's just the stuff in your brain getting to the page with, with really no interruption. And that is voice. And that takes, oh, you know, 10 years, a million words, whatever, <laughs> whatever yeah, you yeah, want yeah. to put to develop. But, but I, I really think it's, it's both as daunting and as simple as that. Yeah, and that—that's uh, you know, I think was it Hemingway that said you, it's writing is simple. You just sit down on a keyboard and bleed, right? And right, <laughs> you know, it's yeah, it's it, that duality again. Now I expect um, your background in journalism still serves you really well today, and I, I hoped you could talk about your research process, both in finding interesting and relevant materials for a novel, and then finding ways to integrate them in such a way that you're not sacrificing the interest of the story for cold hard fact. Right. Which is, which is always a great balancing act, right? Like you, and, and the rule, I, I'm a believer in the 90, 10 rule, and it might really be more like the, the 95, five rule or, or less, which is, you know, most of what you know, you should leave out. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that the wonderful thing about having been a journalist, uh, one of my favorite cartoons is the one that shows the journalist with the dart in his hands and he's throwing it at the dartboard saying, today I'm an expert at, you know, um, you know, because as a journalist, you, you kind of have to be a mile wide and an inch deep and, and yes. be able to, you know, discuss just about any topic. And, but that then brings you up against and brushing up against a great many different institutions, uh, whether you're talking about the law or law enforcement or government or nonprofits or business, or, you know, you can just go down the list of, of things mm -hmm. that you kind of get to, to brush up against. And, and not that you're truly expert in any of them, but you see the world and you see the people and you understand how they work and how they interact and whatnot. Um, and so I think that is kind of where a lot of my quote research started is that I was a, a, a newspaper reporter for many years and, and got to, you know, ask those impertinent questions uh, that a newspaper reporter gets to ask. And then it, it, it kind of taught me how to ask questions, of course. And, and nowadays I can um, relatively easy find the expert I need to, right? And then people by and large, I find, love to talk about what they do, right? Um, and, and especially when, you know, it's somebody like a, a physics professor, say, for example, who doesn't really get to talk to a lot of people about that thing, <laughs> um, you know, but even, even law enforcement who, you know, which, okay. So law enforcement is a, is a quote, sexier uh, profession, if you will. But you know, a lot of those people, especially now, my God, mm -hmm. feel deeply misunderstood. 
I mean, you're, you're certainly aware of that and are dying to talk to somebody who they feel like will represent them fairly and accurately. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, like I'm, I, I know you probably have a, a fair number of law enforcement folks who, who listen to this show. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the cop I wrote in this book. Uh, uh, Detective Emmett Webster is his name. He's not a, a door kicking in kind of guy. He's not particularly flashy. He's not. He's just a good, honest, plotting cop um, who, who does the work. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and I think that is so much of what I found, because I, I definitely covered cops some as a, as a newspaper reporter. And that is, look, I, I wrote about bad cops. Of course I did. Um, you know, but because of that, I became aware of really the people I was writing about, like, it's like 99% of what we talk about, especially these days when it comes to cops are really 1% of the cops, you know, <laughs> but yeah. like the, the and, and I, I certainly, gosh, I, I wrote a story about a, a group of cops in Newark who were shaking down drug dealers, right? It was, right. it was five rogue cops mm-hmm. in a department of 1200. Right. Well, so it's like, wow, that less than 1% of your department has just wrecked your department's reputation in the community. Because yes. you can better believe that every housing project I went to and every street corner I hung out on, they knew about those five cops who yep. were shaking people down. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and the other 1195 becomes silent at that point. Right. Um, so I think I've always been mindful, um, uh, even though I've written about crooked cops too, of like that most cops are not that, you know, most cops are, are really decent people who realize that their job is law enforcement, that they are not themselves the law, right. and that if they break the law, they're actually no better than the people they're arresting and punishing. Um, and, and, you know, and Emmett Webster is, I think, one of those guys. Yeah, and that's, you know, um, because cops from, come from, uh, from the population, just like everyone else, they uh, come along with some percentage of all those same human fallacies, uh, right, or, uh, right. you know, shortcomings. Um, yeah, and I had um, brief occasion uh, a couple times during my career to have brushed up against um, a, a legit dirty cop, and I can absolutely tell you, there's nothing, nothing worse to both the uh, the criminals on the street and the cops. Yeah. Um, we had a, a a guy that he uh we found out about a guy that he had stepped over the line and taken some drug money and Mm. um i worked dope for a while and it was a kind of a regional thing but anyway so uh once you the the line between cops and criminals is pretty distinct and bright and it's it's fine it's just part of the business Um, but once you cross that line the criminals start treating you like a criminal because now you're one of them and the rules don't apply anymore and uh, then also the cops get to treat you like a criminal. Um, and, you know, so it was a, yeah, it was a pretty, uh, pretty awakening thing for, for that guy. But anyway, yeah. I, I, I mean, digress. Yeah, they, no, I know. But the, you know, that like the guys I wrote about in Newark, you know how they got their start and you'll find this familiar. They would confiscate like, you know, $80 from some kid on the corner. Mm-hmm. And after having spent, you know, six hours in the rain, the cold, and rather than go back to the precinct and turn it into the confiscation fund, they would just go out to a diner mm-hmm. and say, hey, look, you know, we just, we just spent six hours in this rat-ass housing project. We're, we're just going to go to get ourselves something to eat, right? And that's, that's how they started, as innocent yeah. as that. And then, it, you know, one thing leads to another. Yeah, it's all, uh, it's all baby steps. And, uh, 
this a total it'd be a very short digression, I promise. But there was a, a case out of New Jersey, I want to say it was out of Patterson, um, where some cops there were getting a tremendous amount of overtime for working a, uh, a city project whenever they would do repainting on the streets. And uh, they ran the painting truck between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. Um, and they would have to pay like four cops overtime for all those hours, except it was like a five hour minimum or something by their union contract. So all these guys are getting all this overtime for a painting truck, supposedly to keep the streets blocked off so that there were never, nobody ever messed up the paint. And the city finally says, well, how many times has the paint been messed up? The answer is zero. Well, why do we need the cops there if nobody's messing up the paint anyway? So they end the contract. Uh, the, the group of cops went out and followed behind the paint truck, crisscrossing the street behind it oh, um, to make sure it got messed up. <laughs> and so uh, it, of course, goes to IA, and uh, four of the five deny it, um, deny any involvement, can't prove anything, it wasn't me, even though there's paint on the tires of their patrol cars. <laughs> and so finally, the fifth guy in the middle of the interrogation has had enough, and he's going to say his piece, and he says something like, if you guys wouldn't have taken our overtime, we never would have done this shit. Yeah. And so all five of those guys end up with federal racketeering charges um, yep. and going to federal big boy prison for uh, all manner of, uh, of federal crimes and conspiracy to commit. Um, so, yeah. So occasionally um, those things do actually happen. And it's, uh, it's terribly disappointing that that, yeah, is, you know, um, 98% of the news coverage on the profession, but that's, you know, that's uh, part for the course. Um, getting back to the actual interview, Brad, I apologize. Oh, um, no problem. No, I mean, what you just described is very Jersey. <laughs> Believe me, you know, like the, the number of public officials we wrote about who you, you'd find out, okay, what, what they, they, they've just been, they've done the perp walk. It's federal. Uh -huh. So, you know, it's real. I mean, yeah. Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, and then the, uh, uh, the, the candidate for president, you know, ran mm -hmm. up a record of like 112 and O in, in corruption cases, right? This is how he really made his bones politically. It's Holy because God. the politicians were so stupid, yeah. that, you know, and like, yeah. and they would do things like award a paving contract to someone and then let the guy pave their driveway. Like that would be their kickback was a paved driveway. And yeah, they'd end up in federal big boy prison because they wanted to get a paved driveway. Really? <laughs> yeah, just dumb, dumb things, you know, just amazing. Um, if you could go back in time at this point, a couple decades to about 25-year-old you, what personal and professional advice would you give young Brad? Um, buy Amazon stock. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking Starbucks, yeah, but Amazon would be better. Yeah, Wh Whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, you know, that's a, it's a fun game to play. Right. But, yeah. um, uh, you know, you like, cause you think you tell yourself like worry less, like things are going to mm -hmm. work out. Okay. But if somebody, if, if wrinkled, haggard future Brad came and visited me right now and said, young man, everything's going to work out fine. Worry less. Do you think I'd worry any less right now? No, I'd, I'd, I'd be stressed that like Interference, my new book, that this is going to be the first book I've ever written that no one's going to buy. Mm -hmm. And I, it's going to send my career straight into the tanks. Uh, and I'm going to end up, uh, you know, selling apples on the corner to support my children. I mean, you know, like, I, I, I don't know. We, we have those, we have those fears, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, man, and that was, 
That's a downer of an answer to your question, Gavin. Well, I'm well, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, then also, if you worry less, that removes all the hustle, and then nothing gets right. done, and then it alters the future anyway. So, yeah. Well, yeah, and I, and I do think fear and desperation are wonderful motivators for a writer. Yes. Uh, and I, and I, I keep my fear and desperation very close, believe me. Yeah, I, uh, I find I am most effective at both word count and the, uh, the intensity of, of said effort when I have an axe to grind or right. I, f I fear one's coming for me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Now I, I do like to, to close out with some hypotheticals. Suppose you wake up tomorrow and God forbid it should come to pass, Brad, but suppose you wake up tomorrow and find that you've been murdered mm. and you can assign your homicide to any fictional detective assassin or revenge artist who's chasing your killer. <laughs> All right. Um, shout out to my man, Mark Graney. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have the gray man just <laughs> visit vengeance on their asses because I know one way or another he will win right yes. they're like yeah. the gray man is not gonna lose so I'm I'm gonna let the gray man and and I and I do like about the gray man that uh, nobody will ever see him coming right they'll just see this kind of average sized guy doesn't yep. look like much uh, and then he will mess them up and I appreciate that gray man. Yeah, yeah. Court Gentry is, is one of the better, uh, better written uh, uh, fictional agents. I absolutely love that guy. Yeah. Well, and let's and let's be clear. Like I, you know, I write in the domestic thriller genre, and and I do certainly read a lot of that. But I, you know, some of these, some of the military thrillers, uh, you know, some of the guys like uh, Don Bentley, without sanction. Yeah. Uh, his yeah. first one. Wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, you know, certainly Brad Taylor's work, I think, is terrific mm -hmm. uh, and grainy. And, uh, you know, I, I really I do enjoy that subgenre, even if I don't write it. Uh, and, and there is something awfully fun about just going on a wild ride with some of those guys and, and letting yourself be swept away that when, when I, when I told you before about the, the two bathing suits and seven mm -hmm. books, yep. yeah, there's always at least going to be one of those guys on the, on the ride with me. Yeah. You know what? I, I love how uh, all through those characters, right? We as a society, as readers get to flesh out our intrinsic desire for revenge right. without having to endure it in real life and still get to have some emotional distance in, uh, in our own reality, but in fiction, we, we can live through those guys. It's, it's amazing. I think a, a really great outlet that they give us. And just a lot of fun. And let's yeah. face it, we, we do read this for entertainment, right? Yes. Um, and so yes. it's, it's wonderful just to be wildly entertained by the stuff they come up with. Yeah. Brad, it's been an absolute pleasure and honor having you on the show. I am so grateful for your time and I am really looking forward to finishing uh, my copy of Interference uh, so I can brag about it to everybody else before they actually get to pick theirs up. <laughs> awesome. Well, Gavin, thanks very much for having me on the show. This was fun. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been acclaimed international bestseller, Brad Parks. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.